All right, I want to answer a question today. It's a deep theological question, and, and we're going to track with it. We'll do our best, but it is a question that's asked in church. It's asked outside of church. It's asked in youth groups, chat rooms online, and we're going to tackle it today. Could God create a rock so heavy that he himself could not lift it? We only ask the serious questions, and I, here's the thing. I'm actually going to try to answer it. Could God create a rock so heavy he himself could not lift it? And what the question, as silly as it is, what it boils down to is a real difficulty in understanding God. What are his limitations? Is he limited, like, in his creative power, he can't create that thing? Or is he limited in his might that he couldn't pick it up? We wonder, what are his limitations? So we remember these two attributes of him, that he is almighty powerful, and that he is a sovereign creator who can do whatever he would want. But we forget this other very fit set rule about him, that he is an absolute moral law unto himself. And I think that is an attribute of God we have the hardest time understanding. I can like think about the fact that God can make whatever he wants, that he can do whatever he wants. It's hard for me to think that God cannot sin, that he cannot lie, that he cannot break his promises because he is that law unto himself. That this is not that God would prefer not to. It doesn't say that God doesn't like to lie. It says that he cannot lie. God is absolutely moral. And though he is the highest authority, he holds himself to that standard. He never breaks the law. So the question is, what are God's limitations? And the answer is, God is not limited by might or creative power, but sets his own absolute moral limits. He would never test himself by creating the infinitely heavy rock because he would never, uh, he would never set uh, a test for himself, be vain or to be vapid about his power and who he is. So he would never do it. That's the answer. Like the Father, Christ also had limits. The moral law, yes, absolutely moral. He could not break his own moral law. But he also had a life a lot like ours, and he had limits that were unique to being a human Messiah. And I know that that's hard to think about Jesus Christ having limitations, but it is true. There are limits that he chose uh, to live with, that he had, that he chose to live within, and I'll show you what I mean by that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has a very clear idea of what's going to happen. So clear, he, he has foreknowledge, he knows what it will be. I imagine, you know, with the, the, the pain you hit with your toe and it's unexpected, it hurts really bad. That definitely hurts more than a shot, but you freak out sometimes more about the shot because you know it's coming. You get surprised by stubbing your toe. I, I hit my toe so hard, I'm certain I broke it. It was bruised. Doctor was like, if you break your pinky toe, there's nothing you can do. It's a long for the ride. I hope it heals straight. And that was all he could do for me. Um, but it took me by surprise, and it hurt. I mean, I buckled over on the ground, but I've worried about things that I knew were coming, you know? I mean, if you, if you were to wax my chest, I would imagine it wouldn't hurt as bad as when I broke my toe, but I'd freak out a lot more. I would be so panicked the whole time that it was coming up to my moment. Jesus has a very interesting experience because he has perfect foreknowledge of what he's going through. The torment isn't just that he knows that nails will be driven through his body, not just that he knows he will be beaten 
to the point of death with a cat of nine tails. It's not that he knows that he will be um, suffering asphyxiation on a cross. It is everything that we dread about our unholiness. The guilt that we feel, the shame we feel, we're talking all of humanity's guilt and shame being poured onto him, the amount of suffering he's going through or that he will go through soon is considerable. And the question I guess we have to ask is, did he want to do it? And we find this in Mark Mark chapter 14, verse 36. He says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Take this cup from me. To understand what he means, we need to understand a bit of the idea of the cup in the Old Testament. It plays through continuing to the New Testament, but there's this idea of the cup of iniquity. And what it would be is it would be a person or nation would, as life goes on, drops of of sin and and evil things, the, the things that are coming off of their life are filling up this cup. And I suppose it could also be righteousness, good things filling up, but there comes a point of judgment when it gets filled to the top and who knows the hour except the Lord when judgment will come and they have to take the cup that they've been filling and drink it and uh, experience whatever it is they've been storing up. And it's this idea that explains a little bit of how can judgment against the nations be so great It's judgment they're pouring on themselves that they've been filling this up and there comes a point that you have to drink it, everything that was in it. to face judgment and to, at times, even be destroyed. Jeremiah 25, 15 through 16 speaks of this. And this is a vision that the Lord uh, speaks to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, me being Jeremiah. Uh, Take uh, from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And they will drink it and they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. It's this idea that they have been filling and filling and filling, and the moment that's leading up is a fall of empires, a transition of massive power throughout Mesopotamia, of destruction and war. And the time has come for Judgment Day when they will drink that cup. Christ is speaking of the cup of all humanity that's been dripping and filling and filling and filling, and the time has come to drink eternal sin, and who will do it? Christ's cup is an incredibly bitter one. Though it turns sweet later, it is bitter. He came to drink the cup of our wickedness, the accumulative human sin project we've all been so diligently contributing to. He came to empty that cup to such a point that there wouldn't be a drop left behind for those that receive his cup in exchange. We get his cup in exchange, the accumulative righteousness that is his that we consume. That's actually the image of communion that we took today. The cup of the new covenant is that our cup of iniquity, our cup of pain, destruction, everything that should have fallen away from us goes. And what poured into his cup, what poured into his life is something that's given to us. And when we drink it, we get his life the same way he got our death. This means that we've been storing up judgment and punishment for a prolonged day of judgment, and Christ will now take it. Christ wanted to do what was right, but he did not want to hold the guilt and shame of the world. That is not a thing he wanted to do. Even Jesus didn't like the hard part. There's sometimes that I'll hear friends of mine that are parents, will say, I just, I feel like I should be enjoying bedtime, but I really don't. It's like, yeah, that's the hard part. Jesus didn't like the hard part. It's okay to not like the hard part. Jesus did not want it. 
It's an amazing conversation that he has. He did so because he was submitted and because he, he had this vision. If he has pure, perfect vision of what the suffering will be, he also saw the joy that was set before him. And that's the point of Hebrews. It says, for the joy set before him, Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And the amazing thing is, is that you were the joy that was set before him. He did something he did not want to do. He did not want that to be his lot in life. He did not want that to be his cup, but he drank it and he did it anyway. And he was limited to the lot in life that was his. And he did it for what was lying ahead for him. He didn't want that lot in life at this time, but he accepted it. Our lot in life, that expression comes down to this idea of having property given to you or a property you bought. Everybody has a certain lot in space. And we get a lot in life, a boundary of, who we're, of what we have. And whether we accept it or reject it or not is up to us. We can whine about the boundaries and how they fell, that our neighbor has better creek or better low-lying fields. They have nicer trees. Or you can stop complaining and simply build on what God gave you and the boundaries, the limitations, and the lines that you have. In terms of the cup of iniquity, I got to say, my lot is a lot better than Jesus's. It went way more in my favor. He drinks my horrible cup of everything that I should get and your cup and our cup. In exchange, I get the cup of life. I get the better deal in that. In a sense, Christ saw that. He saw the lot of those that were spared, for those that the cup was spared from. He saw it and he realized it was better, but he still drank what was his. The fact is, is that it was his lot in life to drink that and mine to drink mine. He traded with me. He never demanded his neighbor's lot. He never demanded my lot. He never said, let this cup pass from me. It's not fair that Sam's passes from him. I want what he had. He recognizes that it's better. And he even asks, if it can be, but not my will, but yours. Christ was sinless and he accepted his lot in life. There is an incredible, deep spiritual growth that comes from accepting one's lot in life. The limitations and the bounds of who we are. Accepting your limitation is critical for a holy and complete life. Holy is a thing that isn't just about what we don't do. It's the, it's the things that we do, the joy that we have, the fullness that we have, that we don't have contamination, aberrations, confusion, things that are in the way, things that make things painful, but with the removal of them, we're full. A better life can be had uh, if we build on what we have, what we're given. Better to live the life you have than to waste one that is not yours. Accepting our place uh, is the beginning of real true freedom. You know, consider lust. Let's talk about our main lust passage. It comes from uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, this is the clearest passage on human lust that we have. And it forms the central part of our Christian concept of sexual purity. Yet, I don't know how often we really see the bigger picture that's being painted here that this isn't just about thought control, it's about realizing that that person doesn't belong to you, that that is not your spouse, 
That is the central thing. There is nothing in this passage that says you can't have a desire for your spouse. Is that that one is not yours. That is not your lot in life. That is not your cup. And there's this envy, this desire to go beyond bounds. And we're called not to just control thoughts, but to accept the life we have, to not lust for someone else, but to have a desire for the spouse and the person we're supposed to have those desires for. This is wanting what is yours and not yours. To think about your wife or your husband is something that will build a well-fitted and secure life, but refusing that limitation is the root of much sin. If, you, if we have a desire for our, our husband or our wife and we, we put things into that context, such a desire is life-giving. It, it, it makes a home healthier, makes a, 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 the whole family a, a place of trust, a place of safety. But if you go outside of that, if you start to want something that is not in your lot, that is not in your cup, an affair is incredibly destructive and it sets off your life like a stick of dynamite. Lives get destroyed for this. Only what is meant for you is something that will be alive. Hold something that was meant for someone else and it will break apart and turn against you. The only thing that is good for you is what's really intended for you. We see that wanting and accepting what is within our life happens to be the groundwork of a whole lot of freedom, a whole lot of hope, a whole lot of righteousness that we might not consider. And I want to ask you a tough question. Can you be anything you want? Because in American culture, that's very pushed. That's very established. You, you can be whatever you set your mind to. And certainly, we see people that are surprises because we say, well, we didn't know we had it in them. But in the end, didn't they have it in them? And we were surprised. I heard that Damien Lillard, he was, he was born in a poor family far from a gym, so his dad took a fruit crate and nailed it to a tree in their front yard, and that's where he practiced his shooting. You know, it was like 200 million over four years quality of shooting, practiced in a wood crate. And we would say, well, we had no idea it was in him, but you know what? Give me a wood crate. I never would have got there. There are certain limitations on our life. The reality is that God gives and portions to people's strengths and weaknesses. And you need the weaknesses because without them, there wouldn't be community. God gives us weaknesses and we are capped off and we are given limitations so that we need each other. There are real limitations on your life, hard baked into us. I will never be a world-class athlete. No matter how many fruit crates you give me, I won't even be a zip code athlete. Honestly, if I spent the next year working on basketball and I only had to compete against people in 97055 zip code, I would lose. I wouldn't even get seated. They would be like, you're out. Just go serve water. You're done. Now, this isn't to say some callings are shocking. They'd be very surprised. Take David, for instance. David has no uh, publican kind of career. He had nothing in politics. He had no experience in military, anything. He's just a boy taking care of sheep. No one knew who he was. And yet he's anointed and rises up to being king of the nation. Or Gideon. In the time of the judges, uh, Gideon is chosen to rise up and be a courageous judge that leads the people in victory against their enemies. And when the story starts, he's hiding inside of a wine press. There are things that can be, whoa, bug, earwig, hello. Get off of here. Oh, he's going right for me. This is like the most distracting. He's got a grip. Damn. I don't want to kill him in front of you all. I'll let him crawl. <laughs> 
If this is your limit, my friend, you cross it, you will drink your cup of iniquity. Um, there are things that are shocking. But it isn't that those two men could do whatever they set their mind to. They were not limitless potential. They could do what God called them to do, no matter how unbelievable it was. D.L. Moody once said, if God is your partner, make your plans big. And the key thing isn't dream big, you have a limitless potential. It is when God is your partner in something, when God has called you to it. You can be what God made you to be, no matter how unbelievable that is. And that's our correction to the American myth. You can be whatever you set your mind to. I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news, but that's not true. We can be what God called us to be. You know, the worst trap is that, yes, we want what other people have, but the most painful thing, and I think it's the kind of envy that eats us the most, the limitation crossing that we, that we just can't stand, that we're stuck, and we want to take it is when someone has a calling similar to ours with more success. That is the thing that gets us probably the most. And this is, this is one of those truths that's hard. It tastes bitter up front, but I promise you it's, it's sweet on the other side. No matter how gifted you are, no matter how good you are at something, there's someone who's better than you at it. Someone this morning is giving a very similar sermon, and they are preaching circles around me. The things you're best at, there is always a bigger fish. There is always someone who can do better. There are people who are filled with such kindness and patience that they refresh souls. Wherever they go, people feel better. They're always going to be outdone by Mr. Rogers. I don't know who beats Mr. Rogers. Maybe he's at the top. I don't know. There's always going to be someone braver than you. There's always going to be someone who's smarter than you, someone who's kinder than you, wealthier than you. Your best is being outdone by someone. And fighting to be the one on top is going to eat your soul alive. And I have the perfect story for this. Peter's envy of John is well established in Scripture. Peter had John envy. He, he just wanted what John was, and it bothered him. Everything from John was a hugger. He's like hugging Jesus all the time. I, I guess that bothered him and because it's actually mentioned here a little bit when he's referring to some of his... Uh, his, his jealous moment. But the thing about Peter is that he was a poor fisherman. And he did not uh, make it in with the scholastic community of the Pharisees. They were very well educated. They were theological masters. He was not among them. He had to fish to make a living. He was busy. He had kids he had to take care of. He had a limited life. And yet he found himself sitting right next to Messiah, King of the Universe. I mean, I would imagine to Peter that defined who he was. That was like the thing, if there's a high school or union, I'm bringing that up. Like, it was a big deal. And yet, you can see very clearly, often Peter feels like John is just a little closer to Jesus than he is. And so there's this moment when after Peter's restored, after he denies, he knows Jesus, Jesus forgives him, brings him back in. Jesus has a moment where he prophesies about Peter's life and foreshadows the fact that Peter is going to be killed for the faith. And this is how he tells him. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you don't want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, uh, that was, he was following him. 
This was the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? And that, I think that probably hurt Peter because if you're going to find out like, hey, someone go, someone go talk to dad or mom or find out what's going on. You accidentally figure out who you all think is the favorite sibling to go do that. It's always the youngest and cutest, but, you know, that was John in this moment. The disciples went to him and said, find out who is going to betray. And he went and gave him a hug and asked him. So Peter, uh, when he saw him, said, Lord, what about him? This is the first thing he says. After all this, restored, forgiven, it's the first thing on his mind. And Jesus answered him, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. When told that he's going to die, his first question is immediately, what about John? And Christ's answer is, that's not your cup. That's not your lot. This is your lot in life. You need to just follow me and quit thinking about everybody else. Just worry about following me. In times of struggle in our life, when we are struggling particularly against feeling inferior to someone who's similar but still better than us, we need to cling to our close relationship with God. We are just simply following Jesus and to go back to a place where it's no longer about gaining uh, accolades, but it's a humble walk of following and discipling and apprenticing under Jesus and to let that be enough. And that brings us back to our first passage. Jesus opened that prayer saying, Abba, Father. It's generally considered that they... He probably just said one thing, but it was translated twice by the translators. Abba is in Aramaic, and not much of the Bible is written in Aramaic, but that's what Jesus was speaking. So he would speak everything, Sermon on the Mount, Aramaic, and they wrote it down in Greek. Um, Abba is an interesting word because they look at it, and a lot of many of the things Jesus taught was very similar to what Pharisees had to were teaching, was because they were um, they weren't a million miles off. They had a lot of things straight, but it was always corrected. There was something that Jesus brought to it that brought it to fullness. Calling God Abba was actually completely unprecedented, and they can't find records of that ever being a thing anyone said because it was too intimate. The word Abba in Aramaic is similar to the English word dada. It is taking the word of father in Aramaic and shortening it down to the sound that a baby makes when they first try to say it. Abba was typically the first word that a child said, just like dada is the most common first word of a, a kid says in the United States. And it was something that is incredibly intimate and unique to what he's saying, and it was unprecedented and personal. And we find that Christ gives this to all of us, that we also, it says, uh, Paul says that by Christ's spirit, we get to cry, Abba, Father. To Christians calling God Abba and being familiar with the Abba, Father thing, it's common to us, but it was not common back then. And there is a whole intimacy and connection we have with the Father through Jesus that's incredibly unique, that his personal connection is our personal connection, and his light in the darkest moment was our light in the darkest moment, that when you are feeling your worst and your lot is not working out and you want something else's, you want someone else's, you feel inferior, you don't know why other people succeed more than you in these areas, all you have at the end of the day is your Abba Father. It's the lesson he had for Peter, it's the lesson he teaches us in his own story. God is your best, he is the best thing in your life, Better than um, your cup or what someone else's similar cup might seemingly look like. It is enough. In the end, one of the most important things about living within our limitations is when you don't live in your limitations, you're essentially trying to be God, and that's too much pressure for you. 
God said, Christ said that you can't make one hair on your head colorized. If it's gray, it's gray. You can't add one hour to your life. This is God-level stuff. And he ends that by saying, don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. We have this way of when we step out of our boundaries, we try to take control of things that just aren't ours. That's God realm. That is God's district. That is God's stuff. And you do not want that pressure. Remember the lesson that, uh, uh, that comes from John Mark Comer. He said that we are image and dust. The creation account of humanity is that they're made from the image of God, but they're made out of dust. Image of God, there is something special and called and amazing. There is incredible potential within each of us to reflect the way God wanted you specifically to reflect his nature. But you are also mortal and finite and made of dust. You can't accept one and reject the other. To live a full life, we need to accept our own mortality, our own dust-like nature. If you don't accept your mortality, you will assume the pressure and responsibility of God. You need to feel the freedom of living your lot in life, of, the, of what it is, the, the boundaries of it, the limitations of it, the things that you are simply not called to do, to not feel the pressure to do them. Because I'll tell you this, if you, if you exchange the biblical understanding of limitations for the American teaching that you can be whatever you set your mind to, everything you don't have, you swear to God, is your fault that you should have been a millionaire by now. You should have started your own business. You should have pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. You were supposed to be a whole lot more than you are, and the little life you're living now is nothing but a daily reminder of failure. But if you are given limitations, and each one of us is called to fill out the society in such a way that we can reflect God's nature in every inch, every place, everywhere we work, the people that we interact with, the class level that we interact with, and we can begin to understand that we didn't screw anything up and we can still just follow Jesus. The American dream is stressful. There are things about the, and I, I never mean to speak poorly of the United States. There's a lot of beautiful things about our culture, but I think it's important in the same way Christ corrected Pharisees' good teachings with a few things that modified and made them better, that we modify the American teaching, you can be whatever you set your mind to, to being you can be whatever God called you to be. No matter how unbelievable, no matter how unstoppable, no matter how unpredictable, or people will say, we never knew they had that in them. The things God called you to be are actually within you, to be ignited, to be built up, to be strengthened. And he put infrastructure in you to do the things you're called to, and the things you're not called to, there is no infrastructure for them. I want to pray for us today that we can live in that kind of freedom to see that Christ accepted his limitations. Jesus Christ, King of the universe, accepted limitations. We can too. Lord, I ask today that um, the things that we have put on ourselves, the guilt, the shame of where we feel like we should have been or what we've screwed up, God, I pray that we could accept the limitations on our life and what they've been, that we can be people who have made the right decisions and have done the right things and have gotten to places that have been hard. No one would call Mother Teresa a failure for living in abject poverty all of her life, never getting married, never having children, giving all of her time to people that she might not know in a few years. But we know in the kingdom of heaven that woman was an incredible success. Not because of the count of numbers of lives she even touched, but simply because no matter how much it hurt, no matter how difficult it was, she accepted her portion from you and lived in those boundaries and limitations and said yes at the calling. God, I pray that we could be the same, 
that we could accept our limitations, we could accept the bounds of where we're at, that, you, that through that you could put stillness where we have anxiety, and you could put clarity where we have uh, fog and unfocused, that when the time comes, we could say yes to the calling. Lord, I pray for those in here that are functioning in a calling, and it is always so hard for them to see someone else that's further along than they are. Lord, I pray that you would give them faith and discernment to have uh, the endurance to build within the bounds that they have, to know that their work pleases you at the number that they do it, at the count that they do it, at the quantity, Lord, that they are pleasing to you and they say, yes, Lord, and do your work. So, Lord, help us to be those who function in our calling, that don't look across the fence, that don't look across and and want what someone else has, but let us accept a life of limitations and peace that we could do the calling that's laid out for us, that we could have the joy that's ahead. We thank you, Lord. Amen.